Well, this week um, I saw an image of Vladimir Putin sitting in a carriage with the Queen. Uh, The picture was taken in 2003, and as you can imagine, it was very uh, jarring, maybe even a bit chilling to see that image. And um, state visits like that can be very controversial, can't they? Sometimes um, leaders have to welcome other leaders to their countries for all kinds of different reasons. Um, They might not want to invite them. Uh, They might not particularly like them. But these visits have to happen. And so the red carpet is is rolled out. The pictures are taken. uh, The banquet is prepared. And the speeches are given, and then the delegates uh, go home, and the pundits analyze uh, everything that happened. They they talk about the body language uh, between the two uh, leaders. Um, And some people, of course, uh, just say it all costs uh, too much, don't they? Uh, Well, our passage tonight, it makes those kind of state visits that we are so used to seeing on on TV, it, it makes those kind of state visits seem minuscule in comparison. Because in in the passage that uh, Hugh read to us, we see the ultimate visitation. And this is not the visit of of a president or a monarch. No, what we have here is a description of the Lord Himself coming to His people. And as we look at these verses, I want to uh, have three headings tonight. And the first is allegation. Allegation. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And let's start with a question at the end of verse 17. Maybe you hear that you have some sympathy for God's people. And one of the deepest longings of the human heart is the longing for justice. And we see this throughout our culture today. People, um, especially young people, are constantly rising up to, to speak out about injustice. Uh, Barack Obama, former president of the United States, he's very fond of saying this, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. People just assume that that is true. And kids often say things like this, don't they? That's not fair. Uh, Grown-up kids as well. Uh, Because justice, a sense of things being right or wrong, is just hardwired into human beings. But what we need to feel is the tone of the question. And this is not like Psalm 77, which we looked at uh, on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. It's not like other uh, countless Psalms where God's people cry out to Him for justice and help. No, this seems to be an accusation Um, an allegation that God doesn't seem to care at all about injustice. Here are people judging the God they think is unwilling to judge. And what that means is that they think they are, well, superior to Him. And this question is, we read the Lord. And that's very striking, isn't it? 
Um, In passages like Psalm 121 or Isaiah 40, what are we told? We're told that the God who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, that he doesn't grow tired or weary. But here he says his people have worn him out with their words. They've been yawning at Yahweh, and God says, well, yawning is contagious. I'm yawning too. They've been saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And God says, I'm tired of you saying that. There's been lots of uh, speculation as to the meaning um, of these words in verse um, 17, the words before that final question. Um, I think, as always, the context is um, very helpful. Remember where we are at this point in the Bible's storyline. Malachi was ministering after the return from exile. Um, At this point, God's people were back in their land, but they weren't seeing uh, the kind of things they were expecting. It was a day of, well, small things, And so, as one of the commentators points out, at this point, they may have been um, kind of comparing themselves with other nations, those around them who seem to be more powerful, more blessed. And we often feel like that, don't we, as God's people? And yet, maybe you can see some of the assumptions here. They are questioning God's character, aren't they? Is He really good? Not only that, they seem to assume that if God does show up, if He brings the the justice that they say they want, then, well, they will just be absolutely fine. There's a real lack of reverence here. And I think there's a warning for us here. We need to be very careful not to presume we know better than God. We need to be very careful about second-guessing what He is up to. It's very easy for us to think that we know what God should do in a situation. But we also need to remember this, that He is God and we are not. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor, asks Paul. And we all know the answer to that question, don't we? And so let the the questions in this verse 17 serve as a caution to us. That's the first thing, um, allegation. But the second thing is purification. Because as uh, chapter 3 begins, God makes it very clear that He is coming. And there may be a delay. It may be, he may be operating on a, on a different time scale, but he is still completely in control. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And some of you may have seen uh, the film Arrival. Uh, Marianne and I are at the stage of life where we can only watch a film in about two or three sittings uh, because of the boys, and we're so tired when we start watching a film at night. Uh, The students are amazed that people could be like that, uh, students here tonight. Um, But 
in the film Arrival, um, 12 spacecraft, uh, 1,500 meters tall, 1,500 feet tall, um, start to appear uh, over locations all around the globe. Uh, And a linguistics professor named Louise Banks, she is given the unenviable task of trying to decide if these, um, I was going to say aliens or individuals, whatever you want to call them, come in peace. Now, I won't spoil it for you if you've not seen the film. It's a, it's a good film. But what we see in verse 1 is, is similar. The emphasis is on the, the surprising, unexpected, sudden, we can hardly believe this is happening and it is blowing our minds kind of nature of the Lord's appearance. When He comes, it will be in a manner they do not expect. And it seems to be that there will be two stages. Can you see that? Um, a messenger will come, will prepare the way, and then the Lord Himself. It's a bit like um, state visits. Often um, an ambassador or some other um, key officials go ahead, don't they, to make preparations. And notice the location identified in verse 1, the temple. And we've already said that Malachi ministered after the exile, after the temple had been rebuilt. And yet there was a real sense of anticlimax when that happened. But here, God Himself is promising to return to it. And now, if maybe uh, today, tonight, you're newer to Christianity, uh, then it's really important to know that Christians see here a very clear a depiction of uh, two figures, John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist helped people um, get ready to hear the message of Jesus. He, he called people to repentance. And verse 1 is, is quoted in three of the four Gospels, Matthew chapter 11, uh, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 7. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus in the temple. And he comes there as a baby uh, to be dedicated in Luke chapter 2. And age 12, he goes missing. But his parents find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers of, of the law, asking them questions. During his ministry, he repeatedly challenges these men. In John chapter 2, he even clears out the temple of those who turned it into a marketplace. In Mark chapter 11, he he watches on as a widow and puts just a few coins into the treasury. He praises her for her generosity. And in Matthew 24, he prophesies correctly that the temple would, well, later be destroyed. And in one sense, it's absolutely no surprise that the temple was his focus because he was the true temple. He was the meeting place between man and God. And yet, in verse 2, the prospect of his arrival seems terrifying, doesn't it? God asks the question, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand? When he appears, this is a rhetorical question. It's here to make a point. No one can stand. And yet, do you see the wonderful surprise? 
when God comes to his people, he will not come to destroy them. No, he will come to purify them. Now, those two things are not the same, are they? Um, Jonathan and I went to the dump at Riverside on Saturday. It doesn't get any better than that when you're a little boy. And there is a very big difference, isn't there, between um, taking an old chair to the dump at Riverside and uh, doing something else like upcycling it, uh, making it new again, and giving it a new coat of paint or varnish or something like that. And God is coming to do the latter. God is coming to purify. He says, for he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And now I have a, a bit of a confession to make. I used to always hear um, that phrase, fuller's soap. I used to get a bit confused. Maybe uh, you do as well. Is it some kind of ancient brand like, like sort of Radox or Daz or something like that? I don't know. Uh, it's not that. And the word fuller really just means to wash. And so what is being depicted here is, is an ancient um, laundry process, God making clean what was dirty. And it's not hard, is it, to think of Jesus here um, coming to wash away our sins. But there is fire as well as water, because God says that he will refine he will refine. He will purify. He speaks of metal being purified. Now, listen to this description of uh, this process. The beauty of this picture, says one writer, is that the refiner looks into the open furnace or pot and he knows that, that the process of purifying is completed and the dross all burned away when? When he can see his image plainly reflected in the molten metal. Isn't that lovely? God is saying, when I come, I will not come to destroy you. I will come to make you like me, holy. You will reflect my image back to me. Now, the particular focus here is on the sons of Levi. They're mentioned in, in verse 3, aren't they? Uh, these were uh, people in a position of leadership in, in the community. And yet, this, this refining principle uh, is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. It's spoken of in First Peter, which we read from at the beginning of the service, as he speaks about, about the trials that Christians face. And Peter says this, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God's goal for us is to purify us, make us 
more like himself. There's a, there's a beautiful um, depiction of this in one of the Narnia books. Um, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it has what must be one of the best um, opening lines of any story. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And uh, the story of Eustace, if you know it, uh, is the story of a, of a changed life. And he was really proud And he thought he was above all the other children in Narnia. At one point, though, he he found himself in a cave full of treasure. And he thought that that, that finally he had everything he wanted. He puts on a gold bracelet on his arm. And when he wakes up, he discovers that he's turned into a dragon. And at first he thinks, this is fantastic. I am going to be so powerful And yet he soon realizes that he's completely isolated. He's cut off from his friends. He's cut off from his family. He he wants to change. And the great lion, Aslan, he leads him to a well. And Eustace uh, recounts what happened. The lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff, the scales, all of that peel off. I was smoother and smaller than I hadn't been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much. He threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. Well, maybe tonight um, there is a painful purification process going on in your life. And maybe suffering is causing you to long for God. Maybe you're having to let go of a sin that you love. Well, you can always trust the God who allows you to go through that. Never think that He's doing that to destroy you. You see, can you see the goal, the ultimate goal of this purification process? Do you see where it is all um, heading? The answer comes at the end of verse 3 and the start of verse 4, the bringing of offerings. God is going to refine His people so that there will be true worship and offerings that will be pleasing to the Lord as they had been in the past. This is what we are called to. I mentioned Peter earlier. It's what he said, praise, glory, honor, when Jesus is finally revealed. Listen to what he says in chapter 2 of that first letter. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. What is the purpose of all of that? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
and into his wonderful light. Friends, that is the reason Jesus came. And this is the reason he is at work in our lives now, changing us, purifying us by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us, and preparing us for a day of of beauty and glory that you and I can hardly even begin to imagine. This is the reason he will come again, to receive our praise. So, allegation, purification. But we also see in this passage, we see condemnation, condemnation. Now, uh, reading prophecy in the Bible, it's a bit like um, climbing a mountain. And what is the hardest thing about climbing a mountain? Well, isn't it the moment that you think um, you've reached the summit, and then you discover that there's uh, a little bit more, the clouds part, and your heart kind of sinks? And it's a little bit like Malachi. These words were fulfilled when um, he ministered. That was one context. And they're fulfilled when Jesus came. That's another. But as we've already seen, there is a future focus as well. And sometimes as we read a passage like this, it's a little bit tricky to work out what will happen when. And when that is the case, we have to focus on what is clear. And what is clear in verse 5 is that the God who will purify will also judge. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, God says. I will be a swift witness. When God arrives, there will be condemnation as well as purification. Those who have engaged in different practices like sorcery, um, adultery, superstitious religion, and, and sexual immorality, both practices that God's Word condemned. Not only that, God also promises to judge those who have harmed the weakest and the most vulnerable people in society, the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were called to, to treat people like that with kindness, with respect. And so, what I think verse 4 does for us is it shows us, does it not, the pervasive nature of sin. That sin is, is not limited to one sphere of life. Because in Malachi, God condemns relational sin, marital sin, but He also promises to judge economic sin, it seems. He also promises to judge that. Both are serious. And the root of all of them, well, it's made clear, isn't it, at the end of verse 5, a lack of fear of God. Now, friends, what we need to remember is that Malachi is addressing God's people here. Malachi is not denouncing the big bad world. No, God is condemning sin in the covenant community, in the church. 
And 1 Peter 4, I mentioned 1 Peter a few times tonight. 1 Peter 4, a clear, uh, 1 Peter 4 makes clear that judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment begins at the house of God. And this is so vital for us to grasp. It changes our witness, doesn't it, to know that a call to repentance, uh, the gospel that we hold out to others, is one that we need to hear too, that we need to hear first. And so do we need to repent tonight? Well, the answer is always yes, isn't it? Martin Luther said, the whole Christian life is one of repentance and seeing every day our need for the grace of God, reminding ourselves of Jesus, our only hope. And so let these verses tonight, let them make you run to Jesus. Let them make us look to the one who will one day come again. It's often said um, that the safest place to be in the middle of a storm is right in the heart of it, right in the eye of the storm. And it's the same with God. We hide from God in God. And when we know that his judgment will come, as he says so clearly in his word, the safest thing to do is always not to run from him, but to run to him. And so tonight, run to the one who went into the fire for you. Run to the one who didn't run from God's judgment. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one who stood in your place. Because blessed, the psalmist said, are all who take refuge in him. Well, let's pray together.